0: If you would please open in the Bible to Acts chapter 11 verses 27 to 30. You'll find it uh, in the Pew Bible on page 920. You'll also find it in the program. In fact, you'll find several translations on page 8 in the program, including the Greek text if you're interested in that kind of thing. I'd be glad if you'd have it open in front of you, because I, it's very important that we understand that what we're going to be looking at is actually um, God's message to us. It's something he wants us to know, something he wants us to understand, uh, something that he wants us to, to live by. And I want to propose that there are actually things in this chapter, in this section, that are very, very important for us at MetroCrest. So with your open Bibles, would you please stand? This is Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so. Sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the chance to be together today. Thank you for the the love you've placed between us and Christ. Uh, Thank you, Father, for the unspeakable privilege of being a part of your work in the world. Uh, We pray, Father, you'd empower us by your Spirit to be bold and faithful in our witness to Christ that we might stand with your people through the ages and bearing witness to him and to his saving gospel uh, here in Carrollton and around the world, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're doing a short sermon series uh, here in late Pentecost 2022 looking at the idea of church planting. I've uh, mentioned several times how exciting Uh, The idea of church planting is, to me personally, I've also mentioned uh, how it shows up in our original foundational documents. When MetroCrest was was organized uh, a little over 30 years ago, they included in their original thinking the idea that we would be involved in church planting. And I've also mentioned a few times that it's providential that MetroCrest is actually in a season when we're thinking about church planting in a very concrete way. Uh, Of course, we looked at the book of Ephesians, which is a church plant. Uh, We have been talking a lot about our being a church plant, a church planted by Town North Presbyterian. Next Sunday, uh, or sorry, next Saturday, uh, Town North in Richardson, our mother church, is having its 50th anniversary Sunday. They'll be celebrating uh, their life as a church plant. They were also, at one time, planted. And also, it, it does bear... Mentioning again that Metrocrest is involved in another church plant. And I find this very exciting. I do want to say a couple of words to clarify the church plant situation we are in. Um, A few decisions have been made. Uh, The session has uh, designated $12,000 to invest uh, to uh, support the church plant that uh, was passed back earlier this year. Uh, It was part of our budget. And, uh, and that decision's been made. We've also made a decision, and this is repeated basically every time we get together, that we support Colin Day, our director of worship and music, as he explores church planting. Colin has been extraordinarily honest and transparent as he's been thinking about this, praying about it. And the session, in behalf of the church, has over and over again stated our, our supportiveness of him as he seeks to follow the Lord as he believes the Lord is leading him. Those are the decisions that have been made. Anything else is actually something we want to discuss. We want to figure out. In fact, one of my purposes in doing this series at this time is I would very much like to bring the idea of church planting from the edge. Where it has always been for 30 plus years. It's always been there. But I'd like to bring that idea from the edge to the middle. I'd very much like for us to think about it. Not just the session. Not just the deacons. But the whole congregation think through this idea of planting. What does that mean? What are the the limitations on that? How do we live that out? What does that actually look like in any given situation? And in this particular situation... Uh, some of you who know about uh, all of this will realize there are a few unusual elements in this discussion. We'll have lots of opportunity to discuss that. But the idea is to put church planting right smack in the middle of the church where church planting should always be. Church planting is not a peripheral object of concern for a few people who have that eccentric interest. Church planting, as we see from the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, is kind of how God designed the church to be. Antioch is not only the first church plant that we read about, it's also the first church planting church. Because as we're going to see next Sunday, the church in Antioch actually sent some of their own, from Antioch out to continue the work of planting churches. Because, brothers and sisters, that's what the church does. I've always thought, for many years, that that church growth is not measured in bigger and bigger and bigger mega churches. That's a strategy, a way of doing church life that is very much known here in Our neighborhood and in our country, that's very often the way we tend to think of church growth. You get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with a bigger building and a bigger parking lot and a bigger budget. And that's the way we envision church growth. That's not actually the way church growth pops up in the New Testament. Yes, churches grow, but churches plant churches. House churches in some cases. And in some cases, as we will see often in the book of Acts where a church planner goes to a place and starts a church. And I'm thrilled to be a part of that. I'd very much like for us as a congregation to think that through. I know there are questions. There are concerns. There are things we have to think about. Why? Because we haven't done this before. Of course there are things we want to think through. As far as I'm concerned, I think that is a healthy process, something we want to do. And one of my goals for church life generally is that we we put things in the middle of the church. We don't put them off in corners. We pull them to the middle of the church and we deal with them together. We think about them together. And that's very much my hope when it comes to the idea of church planting. I want to draw your attention back to Acts chapter 11 to verse 27 to this passage this morning uh, to focus on on a couple of realities when it comes to church planting, and really when it comes to mission generally. Because really all church planting is, is an aspect of mission. The way God seems to want to grow his kingdom is by growing his church, by bringing churches. So the church grows in this in this particular community way, this relational way. And so what I'm going to note about how hard church planting can be applies actually to mission generally. So how does it apply? Look at uh, chapter uh, 11, verse 27. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Actually took place, it says in the days of Claudius, that was sometime in the uh, six, uh, the sixth decade of the first century, 50 something uh, a d that was when the uh, anticipated prophesied uh, famine actually happened. But I want to focus in on this idea of, uh, of a famine. This prophet Agabus comes in. Uh, His name, Agabus' name actually is based on the Hebrew word for locust. Uh, He must have been an interesting character. Uh, A man whose name meant locust comes in. And and here he's portrayed as delivering this this, uh, specific prophecy. He's not the only time. It's not the only time Agabus shows up over in chapter 21. Agabus shows up again. There he actually prophesies a particular hardship for Paul. Agabus prophesied that if Paul did what he said he intended to do, he would specifically suffer. And it involved his hands being bound to suggest the prophecy was that that Paul would suffer in very specific ways, physical ways. He would suffer if he did faithfully what he believed God was calling him to do. So, Agabus has this ministry Of showing up to announce bad news. You ever felt that way? It seems like my ministry sometimes is to show up and announce bad news. Well, Agabus was so good at it, he shows up twice in the Bible. You know, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say in the New Testament about this unusual gift of prophecy where someone comes in and actually foretells accurately the future. I will say this. uh, It happened... It happened in the New Testament. It happened in the days of Paul. It happened as churches were starting to grow. I don't think we should ever be closed to the idea that God is going to speak in the way that God chooses to speak. He is free to do whatever he wants to do. So I think let's be open to what God wants to do. But here he is doing what apparently he's... Gets a reputation for doing. He comes to announce bad news. And this bad news is there's more bad news. Alright? There's more bad news. We, we learned back in Acts chapter 11 verse 19 that there was already plenty of bad news. The church in Antioch was actually founded by Christians who were scattered by a persecution. Uh, during this period of time Stephen had faced martyrdom and as a result of all that Christians throughout the, uh, the region uh, across the Roman Empire eventually were being persecuted. And that was very bad news. It made a lot of things harder. The reason that they came to Antioch was because they were fleeing persecution. So that was bad news. Those were tough times already. And Agabus comes to announce, get ready guys, there's also going to be a famine. So you've got persecution and suffering and hardship, and you've got a famine. And a famine in the ancient world brought a whole new level of tough to tough times. Because they didn't have food that could be preserved. They didn't have reserves. They didn't have all the international commerce that we have where a shortage in one place can be easily met by an excess in another place. If there was a famine, people died. And so Agabus comes to the prayer meeting there at Antioch to announce, Brothers and sisters, brace yourself, there's going to be a famine and there was. There was a famine. I would like to think with you for just a minute about tough times. Tough times are nothing new. I mean, I've lost track of how many conversations I've had in the last year or two about how tough the times are today. We face enormous challenges. How much is gas today? I've, I've lost track. It bounces up and down like crazy. The politicians in Washington, it's all about the election coming up. And so all this stuff is going on and hardship. And we were talking just the other day about how Laura budgets money for uh, our expenses here in the church office. And how our expenses have gone up 100% in some categories. That's a tough time a little bit of the equivalent of a modern famine. There's enormous shortages translating into a lot of money that's being spent. And what's happening for our little church is happening for all of us at home. We're all facing hardship. Jobs are weird. There, there are huge shortages in some categories and people desperate for work in other categories. And with all that has brought the tough time of relationships during during the time when we were shaking hands just a minute ago a sister at Metro Christ came up and said what do you think about doing a special course on, on marriage I said I think that's a great idea because marriages are facing hardship marriages are facing so many challenges this is a tough time for marriage it's a tough time for so many different relationships I mention that because If we think in the flesh, what do you do during tough times? If we think in the flesh, what we do in tough times is we raise that drawbridge, we gather the wagons in a circle, we push other people away, and we start thinking about our tribe, our little group. That's where we put our focus. I don't have to tell you. You know what it's like. You know what it's like. We we start thinking about me and myself and my family. That's where we put our attention. That's where we want to focus. That is very much a quality of human nature. It was not invented in America. It was not invented in the 21st century. That's exactly the situation in the 1st century A.D. In tough times, people pull up the drawbridge, they want to protect themselves, and they go into a defensive mode. They can take a variety of shapes, there are all kinds of degrees, but the idea is the same, you you start focusing on you and yours. Well, what's being described here in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 and 28, is the ultimate hard time expression and a description of a situation that was very, very tough, it was going to get tougher, what would the little church in Antioch do? How would they respond? So tough times is something the Bible knows a lot about. Tough times is something the church knows a lot about. God forbid we ever get into, into our heads That the church is somehow immune from tough times. Every once in a while you'll hear a Christian who will say something stupid like that. That if you're a Christian then all of your wishes are going to come true. Because God wants you to be happy, healthy and successful. He wants you to drive a big car. He wants you to have a big house. He wants you to have a big bank account. And there is a certain stream of Christianity which teaches that sometimes very loudly but even when it's not so loud, it's often subtly present. We're all just a little bit surprised when we experience tough times. God, where are you? So, one of the things that God is teaching us here, as he does throughout the book of Acts, is that tough times are a reality and Christians are not immune. To tough times. Whether it's persecution and suffering. Or whether it's a famine and hardship of that kind. Whatever it is. Christians are susceptible to it. And so here's a little. Yet another example of tough times. And how the church from the beginning. Has had to go through it. You know as a matter of fact. Can I just say this? Can I just say. I think God. God. Gives us tough times. I'm not saying that God has it out for the church and he's going to blast the church and he sends tough times. But in this fallen, sinful, broken world, one of the ways God redeems tough times is by allowing his people to get through them to experience his grace and mercy, his faithfulness, his provision. I was talking to someone the other day who said, you know, I don't learn a thing from my successes, but I learn a lot from my mistakes. I learn a lot from my hardship. And I think that's true. God takes tough times and he uses tough times so that we will learn to trust him So that we will learn to hang on to one another. Not looking inward defensively. But looking outwardly. Together. With arms. Strengthening one another. Not one of us could do this by ourselves. We all need one another. In tough times. So we have some tough times. You ever heard the... uh, the expression, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Um, I've heard that all my life. Well, it turns out, I Googled it. Who said that first? Do you know who said that first? The very first person that we can find who said those words was a football coach in 1953, a few years before I was born, who said those words, and his name was John Thomas, and he coached the high school football team in Corpus Christi, Texas you look it up online, if you find something older than that, let me know. But the website I found said that's where this expression in these particular words originated. But let me tell you, it doesn't just apply in Texas. When the going gets tough, you know what happens? The tough get going. They do not hold back. They do not get fearful. They do not get defensive. They actually go forward. I've titled this next section. Resilient Christians. I, I think that's accurate. But I, I actually prefer tough Christians. Tough times. Tough Christians. Uh, I can't tell you how happy I am. To have Warren and Christina here today. And over the next several weeks. You'll be seeing a lot of them. Over the next several weeks. But. Uh, You got a little flavor of their ministry during the uh, announcement, their interview. Let me urge you, find them out in the lobby. This is one of the most interesting couples. And I can say that having known them their entire married life. They are one of the most interesting people, most interesting couples that I personally know. Uh, Warren was not only a highly successful appellate, a young, young appellate lawyer, just starting out. Uh, working for one of the best appellate law firms in Dallas, when he felt this desire, this call to be involved in Christian ministry, he met this beautiful young Bible translator. Young men, be careful when you meet beautiful young Bible translators because the next thing you know, you might wind up being your Bible translator yourself. And so Warren, who had a law degree and a good job, God got a hold of him through his beautiful fiancée, now wife, and together... They packed up and moved almost literally to the other side of the world where they set up up shop doing something Christina knew about, but Warren knew less about, which was Bible translating. And they stayed there 15 years, 10 years, 10 years. They stayed there for 10 years translating God's word into a language where they did not have God's word available to them in a contemporary form. And they together saw this project. And i got to tell you, I've stayed in touch with them over the years. And if you want to know something about tough times, talk to a missionary. Talk to some Bible translators. Talk to someone in the mission field. And you will hear a lot about tough times. You know, one of the things I've noticed about missionaries missionaries who are very, very, very committed to their work, very committed to their denomination, when they go into the mission field, when they go and start engaging for the gospel in whatever mission field they're in, a lot of those things, while they are always important, they kind of become a little less important. Like uh, Warren mentioned that he's going to be teaching at Seminaria, ESEPA, E S E P A, that means something like uh, Pastoral Studies, uh, study, Center for Pastoral Studies in Costa Rica. The director of uh, ESEPA, Seminario ESEPA, is a Presbyterian. He's a member of the PCA. I've actually met him. Wonderful young man. His name is um, Andrew Halbert. Our denomination, he's the head of the seminary. But under him is a wide variety of people. All orthodox, faithful, bible beloving Bible-loving, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians who see other important issues differently, but they're one in the gospel. And they can lock arms and work together. Because let me tell you, as an evangelical in Costa Rica, there's not a lot of room for denominational infighting. There's not a lot of room for preferring this so strongly that I won't work with you on this. Even if it's important. Like, among the people at Asipa, there are some Baptists. I think there might be one or two Baptists in the room right now. Baptists, <laughs> Baptists Baptist and Presbyterians see baptism very differently. We differ in terms of the mode. We differ in terms of some ways of understanding it. But we can work together. We can we can work together for the gospel. Well, when it comes to mission, you you develop a kind of thick skin. You you develop thick skin that that's also very generous and very willing to reach out sometimes across lines that are a little uncomfortable at times to cross. And you know what I've noticed when I talk to my missionary friends? It gets easier. (laughs) I'm not for one second suggesting that we back away from what we believe to be true. But what I've learned is and you tell me where you think I'm wrong, we learn to put up with each other. We learn to work together as best as we can for Jesus. And we're trusting that the Lord of the church is going to lead all of us together in the direction he wants all of us to go. So, look what happens in Antioch. Tough times, right? Look what happens. It says, The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, I want to suggest to you that is a very interesting response All right. They've just had a prophecy that there's going to be a famine. So the idea of taking up a collection, well, that's not necessarily all that surprising. I guess I'd want to do that too. But do you notice exactly what kind of collection they're going to make? They're actually going to make a collection to send it to the church that was very suspicious of them. See, the church in jerusalem wasn't quite sure what to make of the church in antioch the reason barnabas is there is because the church in jerusalem wasn't quite sure what to make of what these christians were doing in antioch were they orthodox what about this weird idea of a of a church of gentiles is that wait a minute is that is that right is that permitted but here in this church had been taught by Barnabas and Saul. Here, when they heard there was going to be a famine, they didn't immediately say, let's make a collection for us. Let's, let's prepare us. Let's build a big silo in the backyard for us. I mean, I think we could be forgiven if we were to think those things. If, there's coming, if famine's coming, it's not unwise to prepare and save up for your family. I'm not against any of that. But that's not what they do. At least, I'll put it this way. At least that's not what we're told. That's not what was emphasized. What is emphasized is they did this extremely unusual, unlikely thing. They said, let's make a collection, and we're going to send it to the people who aren't sure what to make of us. It hasn't even happened yet. This is all the basis of a prophecy from a guy whose name means locust. And they say, we're going to make a decision. That's the first thing. There couple, three things I'd like to point out about these tough times and the tough people, the tough Christians that come out of it. One is decisiveness. They were willing to make a decision. Decisions are hard to make. Decisions are very, very hard to make. Because it means you have to figure out what you're actually going to do. You can talk about it all day long, but it's, it's actually when you get to the point of saying, this is something we're going to do. Well, brothers and sisters, decisiveness is essential in church life. You know, it doesn't really surprise me that church planting has been in our philosophy of ministry for 33 years, and yet we've never planted a church. I'll tell you why. Because it's hard to make the decision to plant a church or help plant a church, even to have a small role in planting a church. It's very—it's a hard decision because a lot of people have opinions. There are all kinds of things to think about, and it's much easier to avoid. I mean, one of the reasons I'd really like to pull this out, put it in the middle of the kitchen table, and have a talk about it is because I'd like for us to think about actually doing something, taking it off the planning board and putting it on the table let's say okay how are we going to do this what does it look like there are a million different things that have to be decided and the only way you can decide them is to talk about them and pray about them and discuss them and see where the lord leads you so they were decisive it's interesting how um, luke puts it the, the disciples determined Everyone according to his ability. Every single person was involved in this determination, this decision. Decisions are like that. They should involve everybody. So we need to have a discussion when we make a big decision. And that's what happened in Antioch. Every single one of them determined something. They made a decision. There was decisiveness. And then that decisiveness actually led them to incredible generosity. They determined everyone according to his ability to send relief. Um, The early chapters of the book of Acts are humbling to me. They're humbling to me. If you flip back to Acts chapter 2 and you read about the beginning of the church, what you will find over and over again is extreme Almost extravagant generosity. A kind of generosity that, to my mind, in 21st century, almost sounds unbelievable. That they would do this voluntarily. This is not communism. This is a group of people who, on their own, make their own decision to be radically general, generous. And it actually says that there were people who, who gave with... Uh, glad and generous hearts. It says in verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I think our young man at the door this morning had a good idea. (laughs) Have you tithed? Because as the Spirit leads us, as, as we make decisions... I'll be very surprised if the Spirit doesn't lead us to generosity of a, of a particular kind. It's up to every person. You know, there's one of, the, one of the stories in the book of Acts is about a couple that tried to lie about it. Remember the story? Uh, that did not work out well for them. Um, it's a decision each of us makes. And, and actually the apostles told this couple, the apostles actually said, listen, it's your money. You are free to do with it what you want. You're under no compulsion. You're free to do with it whatever you want to do. But I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit usually does. You work it out in your own life, your own family. What the Holy Spirit usually does is the Holy Spirit gives us a radical generosity. A deepening concern for the people around us who are in physical need. And especially for those who are in spiritual need. Suddenly it becomes a point of concern to a church in Carrollton, Texas. That there are some people in Central Asia who don't have the Bible. Why should we care? We don't know them. Chances are we won't meet them in this life. But suddenly the Holy Spirit gets involved and we care. We care that there are immigrants coming, flooding, flooding into Richardson, Texas to go to the University of Texas, Dallas. Flooding. Thousands. Coming from all over the world to Dallas. And suddenly we care about that. Now it doesn't answer every question. Please hear me. There are hundreds, thousands probably of questions to answer. But we suddenly care that there are thousands of students coming from non-Christian parts of the world. Many, 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 many of whom do not know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about Jesus. And suddenly, it matters. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives us generosity. The Holy Spirit makes us care. And the Holy Spirit even makes us make the most, the most difficult two-and-a-half-foot um, transportation of my week. It's, it's from my checkbook to my hand to the collection plate. That's a very challenging two-and-a-half-feet for me to make a decision that I'm actually going to put my money where my mouth is, where I say I care, what does that look like? One of the things it looks like is generosity. And the little church in Antioch once again shows us what tough Christians look like in the midst of hardship. They're generous. They have generosity. And finally, I want to emphasize this. And I don't think this is, again, an accident. It says, the disciples determined every one according to his ability, to send relief To the brothers living in Judea. And they did so. And they sent it by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. That word brothers. That idea of family. I spent some time this week talking about about our unity. Who we're connected with. What our relationships are like. And they're all measures of of degrees of connection. Absolutely, that's important. It's highly significant. But at the bottom of it, what really unites us is our relationship to Jesus. And if you know and love and worship and seek to follow, and seek to proclaim Jesus Christ. You are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. We can talk about the rest. The rest is important. But if you know and love Jesus, and you are seeking to walk with him, and you're seeking to proclaim his word, we are family. We are family. And that should guide us. It should influence all of our decisions. Brothers and sisters, it does not answer every question. But it answers the most important question. We're family. We're united in Christ. And one of the decisive things that sets Antioch apart, that makes them such a significant turning point in the life of the church, is this little church didn't send their money to the people who they were completely in agreement with, that they had no disagreement with, that they had no issue with. They actually sent their money to the people they had the biggest issue with at this time. To the to the. Christians in Jerusalem who were thinking one thing about the, New, the Old Testament. I mean, Agabus himself comes from Jerusalem. Did he perhaps come from that point of view? We're not told. But the idea is that it was in, in Jerusalem where there was a different emphasis, a very significant difference, so different that it led to the first church council. They actually had to have a church council, the very first of what have been many, many, many church councils over this issue. And they said, we're going to send our money to them. Of all the people we could possibly send the money to, we're going to send it to our brothers in Jerusalem. And I think what that is meant to do, what I hope it will do, is put in our minds that kind of gospel kingdom framework My hope is that the PCA will be a church like Antioch. My my prayer, my hope for for Metrochrist Presbyterian Church, proudly, gratefully, PCA, is that we will always have a, a kingdom mindset, a gospel mindset, that we work with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are a lot of things to figure out about exactly what that looks like. There are almost infinite variables. But the idea, the principle. That we're one. That we're united. I think that's one of the great takeaways from Acts chapter 11 verses 27 to 30. May it shape the way you and I look at every single Christian decision. Our whole commitment to mission should be grounded in that. If we're going to be like Antioch. If we're going to be used the way Antioch was used. And my prayer is the Holy Spirit will lead us more and more and more into that.